evening. Just want to warn you that the clock over there is about 15 minutes slow, so if you're looking, you're wondering where I'm going with this, and if I'm done early, I'm not necessarily done early. Um, so Acts chapter 7, and really, by, by rights, we should be looking at Acts chapter 6 because there's a real significant connection there, but Acts chapter 7 is really, really long. And uh, I don't know if I necessarily want to make it any longer, but I'm just, I, wanna, I want to read a few verses from chapter 6, just to connect with, with Stephen and his sermon, Acts chapter 6. And I just wanna, want to um, talk about the accusations. In verse 13, this is the, the uh, religious leaders and the false witnesses uh, they said, they also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. And then we'll look at chapter 7. Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran. And he said to, to him, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring, they would, um, and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them for 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave the covenant of, of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs became envious, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. And delivered him out of all his troubles, and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And then the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and her fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham brought, bought for a sum of money for the, from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people, 
and oppressed their forefathers, making them expose their babies so they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. That's what we're going to, we're just going to stop there for now. And those of you who have studied this passage know that there's a lot of the history of Israel talking in, in Stephen's sermon. And so in terms of how this is going to go in our Bible study, it'll be interesting to see whether we're going to move really quickly or really slowly. But um, we're just going to, we're going to go as, as it goes, I guess, and see how the Lord leads. A couple of different uh, preliminary thoughts I had about this passage was if we compare this passage to the passages in Genesis and Exodus, we see that there's some details that come out that we don't see in the original passages. Some, some flesh on the bones, you might say, some different perspectives that Stephen has in regard to this. We see that um, as I read earlier, Stephen is accu- accused of different things uh, against Moses, against the law, against the temple. He's accused of blaspheming God. And um, we also see that Stephen here is the first martyr, the first martyr of the church. And we're going to look at that as we go through. Now, the passage focuses on three individuals, historical individuals. We have Abraham, we have Moses, we also have, sorry, we have Abraham, Joseph, and Moses. And then we also see within the Moses account, we talk about the nation's blasphemy and rejection, apostasy against the things of God in their history. And then it leads into Stephen's indictment, his accusation. He's turning the tables uh, they were accusing him, but he's going to accuse them, and that's going to cause his martyrdom. We're looking at, we'll look at that a little later on. The historical period that's covered is from Abraham to Solomon's temple. Abraham to Solomon's temple. And then, as I said before, this is a very long passage. It's, uh, it has um, 60 verses, and actually... We want to connect a couple of verses in chapter 8 as we move along. And it is the longest sermon in the book of Acts. It's longer than any of Paul's sermons. It's the longest sermon. And why is that? Well, that's a good question. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that. 
One uh, commentator says, this is the longest recorded message in Acts, which shows the importance Luke attached to it. Stephen, a Grecian Jew, but his life and words prepared the way for the gospel to reach outside the pale of Judaism. That's one perspective. So just, just a question as we, as we start, before we get into the actual text itself, something that was in the bulletin, any thoughts on why Stephen didn't directly address the accusations, but he instead went back to Abraham and talked about the history of Israel in his defense, you might say. Any thoughts on why, what his approach was in that respect? I have, uh, I've, I've read some things, you know, that talking about the Jews were so fixated on the temple, and they were so fixated upon the city of Jerusalem, and they forgot the fact that God used different individuals in different places and different different ways, different times, and God was now doing something different than the temple. Or another reason could be to show and demonstrate that in the past they had rejected God's ways and now they were rejecting God's ways again. As we'll see as we look through, as they're rejecting the fact that the temple and the Old Testament economy was phasing out. It was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they just couldn't see that. They were so fixated upon the temple and upon the priesthood and upon all the things and, of course, their power. The high priest, the, the priestly system, high priestly system was connected with the government, with, Romans, the Rome, with Rome. And so there's also that whole aspect of power that comes through as well. Any other thoughts on maybe why Stephen took this approach? Answering a question. Yeah. You answer with an extremely long answer. We Westerners, we don't think like that. Uh, because uh, Stephen is not telling them anything new in that sense. He's just emphasizing certain aspects. And so by giving that long answer, he is answering. The accusations which are which we which you read in uh, chapter six, there's uh, a number of accusations. Uh, they accuse him of <coughs> blasphemy against the temple, verse thirteen, and the law. And they accuse him that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this temple and change the customs. So in order to answer that. There are changes happening, and that's what they were afraid of. But they are changes that require a long answer. And so that's why he goes through the whole history, and he emphasizes all the different changes that happen, because there's a change happening with Abraham. He goes from Mesopotamia to Haran, and then he goes into the land of Canaan, and then with Moses, 
there's changes happening there, namely Joseph and so on, and namely the temple, from the tabernacle to the temple. So that's, in order to explain that, he has to use their own history to basically say, okay, what God is doing now is another change. So people, they like to keep everything the same. But God is making, doing a change. And so he emphasizes all that. And then also, of course, that the big thing is not the temple, but it's God. So he starts off with the God of glory. He ends with the God of glory. That reminds me of in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, it says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoken time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. So again, it's just confirming. God has spoken in many different ways in the past, in our past as uh, the nation of Israel. But God has spoken to us in these last days by his son. And he connects in verse 2, you know, he connects that he, this is the history that of our nation. He talks to father, he talks to brothers and fathers. This is not something. He's not an insider. He is he's intimately familiar with the history of Israel, and so he makes a connection with with the listeners by calling them fathers and brothers. And as Leonard mentioned about the God of glory, and Serge actually mentioned it last week as well, um, you know, we see in verse, verse 1 here, verse 2, we're talking about the God of glory, and we end, we'll, we'll end the chapter with the glory of God. The God of, God of glory and the glory of God. And we see that it's interesting also that, that expression, the God of glory, it's the only time we see it in the New Testament is in this passage here. We see it once in the Old Testament. But here we see it the only time in the New Testament the God of glory. Now many times in Jewish history, God's glory has been manifested, hasn't it? The tabernacle. The temple. In different times throughout history, God has manifested His glory to the nation of Israel. And this is another time. God has manifested His Son, the Lord Jesus. So let's take a look at um, the first individual, which is you know, Abraham. So the... Um, Talks about the history of Abraham, how he was called out of out of where he was, and God brought him to where he ended up in the, in Canaan, in the nation the Israelites were at this time, and how God worked in that way to bring him to that place, which is verses two to uh, you know four, just kind of the trajectory the. Geography, you might say, on the map, where he went, where he stopped, where he started again, where he ended up. And um, verse 5 talks about, you know, in spite of the calling that Abraham had, he was not given an inheritance, a physical 
earthly inheritance in that sense. He wasn't given the land of Israel, the land of Canaan. He was given the promise of his descendants being more than the sand of the sea through Isaac. But he was not given a physical land inheritance. It It was something future. And we see a little bit about that in the book of Hebrews. And we're not going to read that, but uh, talking about how Abraham, by faith, had these things in his mind, and God worked in his life in that respect. This, um, I guess this story of Abraham kind of sets the stage for the whole chapter. The way I see it, he's trying to get to his main point, verse 51, where, and I think this is kind of what I mentioned, where he kind of like turns the accusation upon the accusers. You sit that people and circumcise the heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did. And so he's going to kind of like give a bunch of examples of this. So Abraham's promised a land, and what he'll show is that God's promises are always fulfilled, even though God's people are always rejected. So you see in verse 9, the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, and they sold him. But then that ended up fulfilling God's purpose. And then even though God had already told them that they would come back into the land, they were in Egypt. Well, um, Moses, he was rejected. We see that in like verse 25 area. And then you see again that um, then he, he promises them again that they would go into the land, but then he's rejected again in like verse 39. And just, there's all this like God's promises are clear to the people. They end up rejecting one of his servants. God fulfills his promises anyway. And then, it's just, it's a, it's when you kind of take a, a minute to look at his argument, it's, it's quite profound what he's, what he's saying to them. And they still reject him anyway. Right? <laughs> and they still... Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Okay. It's interesting, too, to notice the Apostle Paul, when he was speaking to um, Jews in synagogues and traveled around, he would quite often do what Stephen did, not as long, but use some of the Jewish history. But when he spoke to Gentiles, he wouldn't do that. He would use a different method, which is exactly what Leonard was saying, that they had different methods with different people. And that's a good lesson for us. But I think, too, um, that one reason why he used, going back again to the first question, why he went back to Abraham is he wanted to use the history of the Jewish people to show that these these uh, court leaders were in fact doing the very thing that Stephen was accused of. Yes. They were the ones who actually blasphemed. They, they were the ones who were against the law and, and the prophets and so on. And he wanted to use their own history to prove that. So he had to go back to the beginning so they could see the point. Exactly. Now, just, <clears throat> just think about this chapter as a whole. Let's say if if Stephen had only answered with yes or no in his question, let's say he had just said, uh, no, I'm not guilty of this, and then he would have argued, we think you're guilty of this, and then they stoned him. Then there would always have been a question mark, because then after chapter 7, the apostles then would have continued preaching the gospel. But the answer to the Jews would never have been finalized. And so this 
this preaching of Stephen was not only important for those unbelieving Jews to hear it, but also for the believing Jews to hear it, and later on, for those who read the account, like us, to read it. And so here we, like you said earlier, the tables are turned here. The accused becomes the accuser. And so this becomes actually, this whole chapter, this whole answer of Stephen, becomes a pronouncement of judgment upon Stephen, and so uh, upon Israel. And so as, because after this chapter, there's a, a switch in the book. This, these first chapters, it comes, it comes to a, a head where the nation as a whole, through the leaders, rejects the offer of the gospel, the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And uh, I think also that the way Stephen is emphasizing certain parts, especially you see that in what he tells about Joseph and Moses, he's actually showing that what you Jews did, your forefathers did, Joseph and Moses, you are, you are doing currently to the Messiah. So in that sense, the Lord Jesus is typified through the story of both Joseph and Moses. Because sometimes people say, well, it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that Joseph is a picture of Christ. Well, if there's any chapter that shows it, this is the one. And with Moses as well. And we will see that as we go through there. Yes. That's right. And then we can move on to verse 6 and 7, talking about God promised to Abraham that uh, the nation, like the descendants of Abraham, his, his children, would dwell in a nation and be under bondage in a nation. God would judge them, but um, they, would, they would still be under bondage. And that was, of course, referring to Egypt. And, uh, and then the, in verse 8 talks about the covenant of circumcision. So, to show and to demonstrate um, the covenant that God had made with Abraham. And Abraham, by faith, accepting that covenant... There was the there was the uh, sign of circumcision. I'll give you a quote here: Circumcision was a sign of the promise or covenant God made with Abraham and the entire nation of Israel. Because Stephen's speech summarized Israel's history, he told how this covenant had fared throughout this time or throughout time. Stephen pointed out that God had always kept His side of the promise, but the people of Israel had failed again and again to uphold their end. Although the Jews in Stephen's day still circumcised their baby boys as a sign of their commitment to God, their hearts were actually far from God. Their lack of faith and lack of obedience showed that they had failed to keep their part of the covenant. And so they were still practicing this sign after all these years, starting Abraham, but they had lost the meaning of it, right? They just... They... Their traditions, their customs, superseded the true meaning of what 
to sign what's meant to mean. And so I'm sure every buddy in the audience that was listening, every Jew, and as an obedient Jew, would do this to their baby boy. But again, they were their hearts were far from God. They were just doing the practice, just doing the uh, just doing the tradition, without actually realizing what it meant. And we can certainly sometimes put our traditions and our, our customs and make them more important than the the substance of the things that we read in the scriptures. So we need to be. We need to be on guard about those things. We we have a we have a particular conviction of the way that we meet, but there's nothing in the Bible that says, you know, we need to meet at a certain time and in this particular in a, a certain you know in a building like this. So we need to be careful about the way we have our traditions and our cultures in respect to what we really mean in terms of our, our faith and our walk with the Lord. Actually, uh, Stephen, when you go to verse 51, even though here in our section he says circumcision was introduced by God, in verse 51 he says to his hearers, you stiff necked and uncircumcised in heart. That's right. So it says that elsewhere in the Romans 2 and other passages that circumcision is, has only value if it's reflected by circumcision <coughs> in your heart. Oh, yeah. Even the Lord Jesus said this people honor me with their heart, with their words, but their heart is far from me. Yes. We see that all throughout the uh, prophets. They over over and over again they talk about about uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. And the Lord indicts the, the religious leaders in Matthew twenty three, he talks about their hypocrisy. Uh, again. Just more, the act, you know, do what they do, but don't, don't do what they say. You know, recognize who they really are. It's interesting too to compare this chapter with Hebrews 11, where you also find a, a retelling of the history, much of the history of Israel. But there, they do always men of faith and women of faith. They do everything by faith. But in this passage, it's what God does. So for example, what he says about Abraham, he says uh, uh, Abraham, when he, God appeared to our father Abraham, when he was in Mesopotamia, and then he went to Haran, which was somewhere halfway between Mesopotamia and Canaan, the land of Canaan. And then, when his father was dead, he moved him verse 4, that is God moved him to this land in which you now dwell. So the emphasis here is on everything that God does. So by saying that, he's actually even saying, listen, you, you guys have, you think you have all the rights, but it's God who does all these things. He moved him. While in Hebrews 11, it says, Abraham did this all by faith. That's true. Yeah. But here the emphasis is on what God does. And so, we are He's saying we we Jews we're just we're just great. We all, all we can do is we are receivers of what God has given, and so that's that's what he's emphasizing. And they they didn't get that. Yeah. You see that again in Joseph account. It says that 
God was with him. God was with him. God had, God had made these different things happen in spite of the challenges that, uh, you know, God, God's with him. He delivered him, gave him favor, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah, God did it all. So any, uh, as we think about, you know, kind of the Abraham account passage, any thoughts on that before we move on to Joseph? So, verse 8 talks about, so again, the promises of God are given to Abraham, where he has a son, Isaac, Jacob, the twelve tribes, twelve patriarchs, and of, of that comes Joseph as well, of course. But notice in verse 9, uh, Stephen doesn't show the patriarchs in a good light. He says, the patriarchs became envious. Now, I don't know. I, I assume that if they looked at their, at their history, they would think that of the 12 patriarchs as like the top guys, you know what I mean? Like they were the, they would look up to these men, but he doesn't really show them in a good light. They became envious and they sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. God was with him. In spite of, in spite, like, when you think about it, for all those years that Joseph was in Egypt, and they didn't know what happened, like, they didn't have a clue. For all they knew, we thought they thought he was dead. But all those years, God was working, wasn't he? He was working in, in, a, in Egypt. He was preparing, raising up Joseph, preparing the way, because really, through Joseph, he became the savior of his own family, didn't he? He became the savior of his own family. So God was working in the midst of all those years, even though Joseph or the other 11 didn't, didn't realize it, that God was working, God was with Joseph in spite of the challenges that he was facing, working out his will. It reminds me of um, the argument from Gamaliel in Acts 5. And he says, So I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if, if the plan or undertaking is of men, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow it. And it kind of seems like Stephen's making a similar argument. Yeah. A longer argument, but similar. You're like, look, like they rejected him, but then God used him, and then he's, he's going to say that multiple times. Right. Now it's interesting. Just there's a comparison of Joseph's story to the Lord Jesus. That in verse 11 it says, "Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and came." So that those words, great trouble, in the Greek that is exactly the same as the great tribulation. That's Matthew 24 and the Revelation 7. Those exact words are mentioned. And so that that great trouble that they had, famine, is a picture a type of the great tribulation or Jacob's trouble. Michael, that will happen to the nation of Israel in the coming day. 
just before the Lord comes back on the Mount of Olives. The great trouble, the great tribulation that Israel will experience is typified by the great trouble that uh, Jacob and his sons were in. And who was the Savior? The, the Savior in this, in this context was Joseph. But the Savior of the Great Tribulation is the Lord Jesus. So, is uh, Joseph's exaltation, verse 10, as I say, he was imprisoned, but God gave him favor with the Pharaoh. First of all, Potiphar, and then Pharaoh made him uh, second in command of the whole nation. Governor over the Egypt and all of his house. <laughs> he, he delegated, the, the Pharaoh delegated, said, Okay, if you want food, you go to Joseph. He's the man that I've appointed to do everything. He is, I've exalted him, and you go see Joseph. If you want food in this famine, you go see him. He's managing the whole thing. So he was very exalted in the sight of, um, of the nation. And I remember just a, a movie about Joseph, like, you know, when you make a movie about a Bible passage, sometimes the script writers put in things that you wouldn't necessarily think of. Whether it's true or not, it's just their interpretation, I guess, but I remember seeing a movie about Joseph, and he was, you know, he was put on a chariot and rode throughout town, or whatever, Egypt. And who was in the crowd? But the Potiphar. Potiphar was in the crowd. Imagine what he would have thought when he saw this one we sent into jail, exalted. Imagine what Potiphar's wife would have thought when he saw Potiphar, when he saw Joseph exalted that way. We don't know. It's all speculation, but it's it's quite a thing to think about. What do you think? Just imagine your mind. I think it's interesting just to see the comparison between Joseph and the Lord Jesus. Like, for example, there was envy from his brothers against him, especially the chief priests envy the Lord Jesus for his miracles and what he could do and the attraction he had to the people because they listened to him more than to the others. And then how he was sold and where Jesus was sold, that's Judas giving money from the chief priests, and then he was um, raised up, as you mentioned, and the Lord Jesus is also raised up to power, to all power, just like Joseph was raised up, certainly all power over Egypt, but as far as he was in his position there. And so there's many comparisons, and how Joseph was always very obedient and true to what he believed and faithful, just like the Lord Jesus. So there's so much we can learn there. Yes. And throughout, if you look at the history of the Bible, like the characters in the Bible, like we're all weak at best, but, and Joseph was a sinner, there's no doubt about that, but we don't read anything in his account that he did sin. 
So in that way, he's a wonderful, a wonderful type of the Lord Jesus. So, um, you know, there's, there's uh, verse 11, uh, next few verses talking about the famine in Canaan and Egypt. And so Jacob sends uh, his sons down to Egypt to get, to get food. The second time, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. Pharaoh's aware now of Joseph's brothers and all the family come down into Egypt. And then in verse 15, eventually Jacob dies and also the other, Joseph's brother, Joseph dies of course and Joseph's brothers, brothers die. And then uh, the promise, like, you know, they made, especially Joseph, he made, he made them promise, children of Israel promised that his bones would be brought out of Egypt and into the promised land when God visited you, visits you again. And uh, we don't read specifically about Joseph's brothers, but there seems to be something like that as well. Yeah, that happened in uh, verse 16. And that's basically the, uh, the story of Abraham and Joseph in the context of, uh, of Stephen's sermon. Anyone have any thoughts about those two individuals? We're going to kind of leave it there for tonight. But anybody has any thoughts on those two individuals? Just another thought about future events comparing Joseph to the Lord Jesus when it says the second time Joseph revealed himself to his brother. Much like yes. you see it any times the first time they didn't recognize the Lord Jesus the Jews, but at the second coming, they will look on him whom they pierced. They yeah. will recognize him. Yeah, we, can go. Out worship. we go on and on for so sure. So many pictures. Absolutely, for sure. Definitely. Okay, hey, well, thanks for your participation, and we'll continue on next week. And we'll get into Moses, and eventually we'll get into Stephen's accusation against the religious leaders. So keep on studying.